Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, introducing your host, L. Russ. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Very happy to have our guest today, Rob Wolf, a paleo fan favorite, certainly one of the founding fathers of this paleo ancestral movement. Rob Wolf is a former research biochemist and a New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Solution. I'm sure most of our audience has read that amazing book, The Original Human Diet. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world via his top-ranked iTunes podcast, books, and seminars. Here to talk about his new book, Wired to Eat. Welcome to the show, Rob Wolf. Hey, thanks for having me. So I guess my first question is, you know, why this new book? So what did you feel you needed to convey that maybe you didn't in the paleo solution or how does it differ? Because I'm sure a lot of people are sort of curious right off the bat. Um, I loved your book, Wired to Eat, but I'd love to hear um, how you got here. Oh, man. You know, it's... uh... It, it's maybe an insight into what an actual knucklehead I am. <laughs> but when, when I finished the paleo solution, I literally looked at my wife like I, I pressed play to the, you know, send to the publisher. And I was like, OK, so we need to figure out what the next deal is like. This is going to like transform medicine and I really won't have any more more work. And like, you know, it'll solve all the world's ills. And, and uh, clearly all of this stuff in the paleo ancestral health scene has been incredibly helpful to a lot of people, but that was uh, possibly naive on my part that, that it would address everything and, you know, would be adopted by everyone and they would see the, uh, you know, the wisdom of doing all this. And, um, but I really wasn't sure that I was going to do a second book. Like I had uh, did a pretty thorough treatment of protein, carbs, fat, and all the related stuff with the paleo solution, but I'm always, I'm on a couple of different um, research groups, and so I'm always getting new new research and new material. And I had a couple of papers pop up that were really interesting to me. And although Wired to Eat is heavily steeped in this evolutionary biology ancestral health perspective, it's not really starting from that that base perspective of okay, hunter gatherers lived this way, they were healthy, so you should emulate this. It's really looking at this from the question of how are we wired up fundamentally to regulate our appetite. And what what struck me with one of the papers that I read that was related to this, and it was talking about brain development and the omnivore's real dilemma. And I actually did a Palo FX talk two years ago on this particular paper, which was really kind of the seed crystal for making me think, okay, there might be a a really good angle on this. But thinking about or or understanding the way that our neuroregulation of appetite really works and the way that it was forged in this ancestral environment. If you can kind of get your arms around the the details of that, and then you look at the way that we live today and we're exposed to hyperpalatable foods and super addictive social media platforms and, you know, inadequate sleep and inadequate movement and, you know, just this whole package. When you really look at things from that perspective, it is not surprising that making changes both to diet and lifestyle is pretty challenging. And part of my, I guess my primary goal with Wired to Eat is to basically diffuse the emotionality and the drama that so many people feel around just dietary and lifestyle changes. Like I I, I saw lots and lots of people that would try Mark's book, try my book, try lots of these different books, try different online programs. They were motoring along great. They were feeling better. Their gut health improved. And then these folks would just kind of spin out. And in talking to to these individuals, what what was really interesting was these folks, despite the success they were experiencing, there was a bunch of internal dialogue that was going on that went something to, to this effect. I'm surprised by how hard this is I see other people doing it. They make it look easy. 
So there must be something fundamentally flawed with me. And, and, uh, and I heard this story again and again and again, and I was thinking about it. And it, when I first started becoming aware, like people tell you things all the time, you know, when you, when you run a gym or you're in like a medical clinical setting that people share a lot of stuff. And then when it comes up 500 times, you're like, okay, <laughs> by the 500th time, you're kind of like, Oh, there's really something here. And you know, because I'm reasonably well steeped in this stuff, I was kind of like, well, it's, well, I want to interrupt you. I'm so sorry about this, but real quick on this. So do you think, see a lot of people and I'm, I'm and want to get into a lot of the, de- there's a lot of great nuance and tangents and explanations of how we're wired that are important in this book. Um, but just to the general effect of people feeling like it's too hard, the people that I've met or spoke to that feel like it's too hard or they fail at some point, I find are usually missing some piece of the pie here. Is Are these people you're talking about who were doing everything right in terms of this? Because you know how people can misunderstand the paleo situation. So then they just eat from a list. They're not really fat adapted or they might be still over chronic cardio, right? So there could be an element missing that keeps them on that sugar train. Are these people that were kind of following it correctly and still having issues? Yeah, but the primary issue was they were surprised by how challenging it was to to switch things around. And I mean, some people adopt this stuff like the first time that I went ketogenic, it was magic. I mean, there was it was all downhill skiing, no trees, no sunny bono into a tree like it was just amazing, (laughs) you know, and uh, and, but a lot of people, there's some challenges there. But, you know, the the big thing that I saw was that and it would pop up around like social gatherings and stuff like that. Or like when people would start doing compare and contrast to um, people that they would see on social media. So it was really kind of a psychological state. And the the psychological piece was kind of popping up because they felt like they, you know, if there was challenge here, if there was difficulty, that there was something fundamentally flawed in themselves that was making this a challenge. And I was like, no, 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 you you don't understand. Like the way that we're wired to eat is based around this this concept of optimum foraging strategy, which is really simple. It's basic economics. It's you've got to get more calories and nutrition than what you burn in the acquisition of that stuff. And in any organism other than humans or our pets lives by lives and dies by this you know it, it it's uh again it's basic economics basic accounting if you spend more than you make then you end up bankrupt and so this is the environment and kind of the pressures that forged our our evolution and forged the genetics that govern our neuroregulation of appetite and so we're really wired up to eat anything that's not nailed down and then to be lazy afterwards, quote, lazy, you know, not burn, burn a lot of energy. But the the messaging that we get from the bulk of the mainstream medical scene, particularly the dietetics uh, kind of groups, is that we just need to do a couple of simple things. We just need to eat everything in moderation and we need to eat less and move more. And this sounds incredibly compelling. Like it, it's just like. Folk wisdom, that that seems so right. But when you walk down the snack aisle of a supermarket, I'm really hard pressed to figure out what moderation is there. You know, like in the chocolate aisle, not super compelling to me. I'm, I'm, I, I can kind of take or leave sweets. <laughs> but you get me to the sea salt and, and vinegar uh, potato chip aisle and there is no. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's it's pure cocaine for me. So. So that notion is just kind of goofy. And then the notion to just eat less and move more is fundamentally it's advice that sounds fantastic, but it is 100 percent opposite our basic genetic wiring. So, you know, the the people that I saw struggle with this, they maybe didn't have every facet of this story totally buttoned up, but they also were were unprepared for understanding that their biology is expecting a world that is different than what they're experiencing. And if they can understand that, then the, when I started talking to people, and again, this is where it's kind of lucky, like having a little bit of a a clinical practice where you can start bouncing some of these ideas off people. When I would walk people through this process of kind of explaining the neuroregulation of appetite and that we have certain trigger foods that, you know, there really isn't an off switch with, and that's totally normal completely reasonable from, again, this kind of evolutionary biology perspective, there was a little bit of a glimmer of understanding. And they were like, so this really isn't my fault. It's like, exactly, you know, and they're still 
hard work that needs to be done. But if we just were able to, to diffuse that emotionality around the topic, then we could get the person moving forward in a, a pretty favorable direction. Well, let's talk about neuroregulation because it's it's sort of similar sort of like with um, thyroid hormones. It's a Goldilocks situation, not too hot, not too cold, right? Same goes with energy expenditure with food. I love you. You mean already briefly touched on it. We know that a thousand calories of chocolate is not equal to a, you know, uh, some collard greens and a piece of protein, you know, I mean, of course, right, like right. I think everybody can go, okay, we get that. So we understand that. Can you talk on this subject and then get into palate fatigue. I thought that was a really interesting uh, discussion there. And I kind of almost noticed that in myself at some point too, yeah. which is why yeah. the low carbon ketosis, it be right. Cause, and, and there's where the winner situation happens when you're not thinking about food and the mental and psychological obsession, it, it goes away and you know what I mean? And I just thought that that was really right. interesting. So if you could kind of walk us through that, I think that would be really interesting for our listeners. Yeah. You know, and so one of the things that I try to lay out in the book is so Again, people get into these different camps. So you have a camp that says overweight and the neuroregulation of appetite or what have you is 100% hormonally driven and calories really don't matter. And then you have another camp that says, hey, if you stick somebody in a metabolic ward and you starve them, they're going to lose weight. And it happens every single time. It's thermodynamics. You can't fight that. And there's kind of a reality that both of these stories are true. It's kind of like the the... the you know, like the blind people who are are touching different parts of an elephant. They're like, oh, it's like a trunk or it's like a leg or, you know, they've got pieces of it. But both of these stories are true and both of them have significance. And to your point, you know, like a thousand calories of chocolate is a thousand calories, but it's going to metabolically be quite different. And it's going to definitely with regards to the neuroregulation of appetite be really, really different than like some good quality protein and some greens and, and good fats and whatnot. But there's, there's definitely, you know, some, some truth to both of these camps. Calories do matter, but the calories matter because of the influence of hormones. And, and the magic that occurs is if we can get somebody to willingly spontaneously eat in a way that they, uh, almost accidentally reduce caloric intake. And and even saying that the real hardcore low-carb folks are freaking out because they're like, no, 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 it's just insulin. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not fully in that camp anymore. I, I think that you have much more latitude with regards to body fat gain if we're, if we're in a tightly controlled low-carb diet. But um, you can still get fat on, on a low-carb diet and you can certainly stall your your weight loss on a low carb diet by by overeating fat or or protein for that matter. So you know these things do do end up mattering. And I'm glad you you brought up the palate fatigue. This is kind of the dueling banjo that plays against the the optimum foraging strategy. So optimum foraging strategy basically dictates that we try to get as much food and nutrition as possible, burning as little energy as possible. So that's one piece. But then interestingly, we also have baked in the cake this uh, tendency to get bored with what we're eating. And it could be really, really amazing food, but we will eventually get bored of it. And there's actually, again, some really good engineering that goes into that. If we eat all of just one type of food, there's a high likelihood for nutrient deficiencies to occur. And also when we're living out in the natural environment, um, if we're eating plants and we've got a whole lot of one type of plant and we're eating a ton of that, there's a high likelihood for toxicity to occur. And people don't really realize all that often, although Mark talks about this a ton in his books and folks in the ancestral health scene are much more savvy to this. But, you know, everything in biology has thorns or horns or poison or something to protect itself. And these anti-predation chemicals in plants can be both beneficial to life, but in excess amounts, they can be problematic. So, we have these dueling banjos back and forth of of uh, a tendency to want to eat everything that's not nailed down, but then also we get bored of what we have in front of us and we want to go look for something else. And so those two things are playing back and forth in our, our neuroregulation of appetite. Now, if we take the modern hyper palatable, almost infinite variety food environment that we live in, we could order food to our front door. We can heat it up in a microwave, never get out of our underwear, work from our computer at home, 
And if we get bored of what we have, we just go to the pantry and get something else. If you had something salty, crunchy, now we'll do something, you know, uh, sweet and smooth. And I, I mentioned an example of this with a guy, Adam Rickman, who had a really interesting show, Man Versus Food, on, on uh, I think, the Travel Channel or HGTV. And I saw this show ages ago, like six, seven years ago, and it just stuck in my head. And I was I, I knew I was going to use that for something someday. I didn't know what it was. And then it kind of popped up in the book. But Adam had to do a kitchen sink challenge, which is a, a food challenge in which he consumes an eight pound ice cream sundae. So it's eight pounds of ice cream, hot fudge, sprinkles, you know, the whole nine yards. And he gets about a third of the way through the process and he just completely bogs down. And you can see in the video like he starts kind of gagging and he turns green and then he calls an audible that is really, really stunning if you come out of the standard dietetics model, which is, you know, if your belly's full, then you're done eating and, and all that type of stuff. He orders a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries <laughs> and he starts eating a little bit of French fry and then he's able to eat more ice cream. And he's able to finish this ice cream sundae challenge in the allotted time but the only way he's able to do that is by eating more food than what he had to start with. The, 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 uh, the a thousand, you know, probably like a thousand calorie plate of French fries in addition to this huge whack of ice cream is what allowed him to, to, to win in this case, which I'm not exactly sure what he won other than maybe like transient <laughs> diabetes or something. Yeah. That's not much of a prize. really. But it's really not. But that is just so striking to me. And if people can kind of wrap their head around that, they're like, wow, okay. So this guy had an ice cream sundae, which is arguably pretty darn tasty, you know, and, but he had so much of it that he experienced palate fatigue. He was just done, done to the point of actually being nauseous. And then he was able to override that that extreme sense of palate fatigue by changing up the texture and the flavors that he was experiencing via eating these uh, these French fries. And that's just so powerful. And, and it's really informative of the way that we either should or perhaps should not structure our meals. If you have these highly complex meals with lots and lots of different Flavor variations, just imagine going to a really well-stocked buffet. And I live in Reno, Nevada, so there's buffets everywhere. And, uh, you know, when you have these nearly limitless food and palate options, you will eat more. It's just a guarantee. And it's because you are able to continually override that neuroregulation of appetite. You're able to play to that optimum foraging strategy while bypassing the palate fatigue and uh, the I way think we've we, all kind yeah. of been through that. Don't you think like, um, I, I, I myself too, like, you know, you're, you're going to town on some crap of some kind and then you get, you're over it, you stop. And then maybe, <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe you go to something and then you go right back to that thing. Right. It's like a French fry. It's the same kind of, um, it's interesting to kind of have it be put in words because I think we've all had that where you're like, I need to stop and switch it up so then I can keep going on that right. later because I want to get right. back to it, but I'm totally disgusted by it right now. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And, you know, when I get it, so I have a talk that's kind of related to this and I, I roll this video out and I actually have a link in the book for people to watch this video. But when I show folks, I, I, I just did this talk at Microsoft and when I showed these folks this video and made this point about he was able to eat that Sunday by eating more food. Like, I mean, literally like jaws just dropped. They're like, oh, I totally get it. You know, like the whole book could basically be that. And it's like, just don't eat like professional eaters. <laughs> you're, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. Or sumo wrestlers. Um, I want to get there's so many great topics I want to get into here. I want to switch over and talk about, you know, obviously repairing intestinal permeability that halts the autoimmune process because this is really clear a great, I mean, I love how you partner up, um, how, you know, autoimmunity symptoms have disappeared and people who've adopted this strategy. And of course, you know, your book, your book's like, Hey, you know, here's a 30 day reset. And I think anybody who's got autoimmune issues will, will see improvement there from just the dietary changes. But 
I'm laughing my ass off about this headline in your book. It's um, sepsis. It's not what's for dinner. <laughs> so um, let's talk about this interesting, you know, this connection between that and sort of like type two symptoms. Can you go through that connection? Because I think that's an important link to getting gut health under control and seeing how important that is. Yeah. And, you know, uh, this was a really big like aha moment for me. And it it's still a little bit frustrating that it's not better understood in the mainstream medical uh, scene. And uh, although the, the information is getting out there, like every day it, it, it increases, but it's interesting to me that we could get into a situation where we either have abnormal bacterial overgrowth in our gut, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or we could have a food sensitivity that leads into some intestinal permeability. And both of these stories basically expose us to um, toxicants in the bacteria like lipopolysaccharide that are very irritating to the immune system and it causes an enormous amount of inflammation. But what's fascinating to me is depending on your genetics and depending on the specific situation you have, like are you gluten intolerant, like do you have celiac disease or is this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or maybe small intestinal fungal overgrowth even, which is a whole other crazy like newly dis, you know, discovered or, or being investigated kind of sideline to this. Each of these pathways can lead you in different directions and one direction can kind of be in this autoimmune prone situation in which we're creating antibodies, usually to form food particles or, or food and or bacterial particles that then look similar enough to the proteins in our body that we can get an autoimmune situation that occurs. But then the other side of this is the non-autoimmune side, which the systemic inflammation, the impact on the liver, the impact on our insulin sensitivity leads us down a path towards type 2 diabetes and insulin-resistant diabetes, largely driven by an overexpressed inflammatory process. But they're both driven by gut permeability. And, and you tend to see folks kind of fall into one or the other of these camps. We don't frequently see type 2 diabetics also develop autoimmune disease, although my mother was an example of someone that that actually ended up kind of she was a, a very long time um, resident of the, the the side of this story of autoimmunity. And I think that that went on long enough that the systemic inflammation got bad enough that she ended up developing the type 2 diabetes uh, eventually. But usually folks kind of fall into one of these two camps. But it's really interesting to me that we have a common etiology in that story of gut permeability, bacterial overgrowth, and and something really profoundly wrong happening in the gut. It's interesting because uh, I I like this. It's a you have a whole personalized nutrition. And I really like that that term because this is very personalized and individualized as you get down the road because some things might be right for you or me or levels of fat, size of your body and food sensitivities, sensitivities et cetera. One of the things, um, and I want to get into this 30-day reset and also your seven-day carb test, which is really interesting. Um, I want to just touch on, I love the fact that you actually suggest that in this 30-day reset that people check their blood pressure. And one of the things I love about this is that there's one thing no human can do at, at every day, which is see their doctor all day long. And there's so many great home diagnostics and blood pressure, I think is great. And one of them, and I would also throw out there that one of the other things I think people would see if they invested in a, let's say a continuous heart rate uh, wristwatch is also you would see a drop in resting heart rate, uh, heart rate as well, if you track that after 30 days. And so there are some home diagnostics and things that you can do to track and see what a difference this will make aside from from symptoms that you'll see. Um, let's talk about blood pressure. Let's talk about why you a lot of people don't push people to do some at home diagnosis there. And I think that that's important. Obviously, it's not just for a before and after baseline picture, is it? It's not just for that, but that is a kind of a compelling hook because it, it's kind of like, okay, we're going to do this for 30 days and I want something compelling enough both on the objective side of things, which blood work and blood pressure can be really, you know, quite objective and also on the subjective side, like, do you just feel better? You know, do you look better? And so part of the the process and you you understand this really well, like we're always 
trying to help the folks in particular that aren't geeking out on the internet six hours a day about nutritional biochemistry and ketosis and all this stuff. Like we want to help the people that are living a normal life and they may have some health issues or some weight to lose. And they're just like, man, tell me what to do. So we give them this really simple story, which is helpful in the beginning, but it only applies perfectly to a certain group of folks. And then there's, you know, one standard deviation and two standard deviations outside that, that we start losing people. And this is where we need to have some sense of customization. So the way that I developed this, this system essentially in the book is a triage process. So let's figure out where you are today and then let's figure out exactly what it is that you want to do. And so we've got a starting point and an end point and we're going to use some things like objective measures like our fasting blood glucose, like a, a, a really simple thing to do, like checking a, a blood pressure. You can go into like any pharmacy and most of them will let you check it for free or maybe cost you a buck. Or there are some electronic versions of these uh, uh, blood pressure cuffs that you just pop it on and it does everything for you. And they're like 15 or $20, really inexpensive. And blood pressure is particularly important to track as it's one of the first things on that metabolic syndrome path that really starts inching up in people. And it doesn't happen to everybody, but it's a it's a really common feature that starts elevating when people are in a hyperinsulinemic state and then aldosterone goes up in response to elevated uh, insulin, causes us to retain sodium. We retain water. When we retain all that fluid volume, we get non-laminar flow in the arteries that causes damage to the vascular bed. And this is whole feed forward mechanism. So if we can get people and that connection is great too because honestly that's people don't identify high blood pressure usually is insulin resistance right right it almost universally is and that's such an important point you just made so that someone has high blood pressure out there and they're like oh i just need to reduce my stress i might need to look a little further right right exactly and it's all but it's also one of these things that when we get the air fuel mixture right on our food and if we start sleeping a little better and doing, you know, doing some interval training and stuff like that, when we get things right as far as normalizing insulin sensitivity, you lose all that excess water rather rapidly and you may be peeing like crazy for a couple of days while this happens, but your blood pressure just plummets. And sometimes people need to be a little bit aware of that and maybe even take a little uh, uh, supplemental sodium, you know, like salt their food a little bit more for a while so that they can kind of, uh, deal with, um, that dramatic change in their, their blood pressure from what it was to what it's going to normalize. But they, uh, you know, they just reduced one of the most important cardiovascular risk factors and it's very easy to track and it's not particularly sexy, but if you see your blood pressure drop, it's virtually – and you're doing it due via diet and lifestyle means, it's virtually a guarantee you just lost a lot of weight off your midsection. It's virtually a guarantee you just dropped a couple of pant sizes and, and you're, you're looking, feeling, and performing better. So I – And on your way to be more insulin sensitive Exactly. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that process then, you know, we – we can start asking some questions about, well, you know, a low carb approach got us to this spot. Is this where I need to stay? Is this optimum for me? And so I, I do offer up a seven day carb test where people ideally use both a blood glucose monitor and also some subjective measures to do some testing and see how they respond to, to carbs. Because again, this story can change. You could start off really insulin resistant for a variety of reasons change your diet and lifestyle, get insulin sensitive. And then that low carb approach may not feel as good for you. And this is, you know, like in Mark's book, he has this uh, sliding scale going from, you know, ketosis for really effortless fat loss to 100, 150 grams of carbs a day from from quality carb sources if, if you're in a maintenance mode. And that that's effectively the the spectrum that I recommended. It's funny. It's kind of the spectrum that Atkins recommended that, uh, uh, Mike Eads recommended like there's some really good empirical clinical medicine that goes into that. But, you know, in, in this way, we're able to figure out where people are in the beginning, get them moving through a process with a 30 day reset, track things like blood pressure. And some. And I, I give a really broad spectrum of things that folks can track ranging again from the totally subjective, like just how do you feel between meals 
to pretty highly objective, which includes blood pressure and also some some basic lab values. And we move you through and then we reassess at the end of the process. And then you can look at this whole story and say, wow, that was really amazing. But I liked eating the way I did before more than the results that I had. And then you can make an informed decision about where you go. But most people, you know, we, we've seen once they get to the end of this process, they're kind of like, wow, that was really amazing. They figure out kind of an 80-20 uh, rule that works for them. They know what the trigger foods are. They know what they need to do to more or less stay on the rails. And then they, they've really, you know, affected a change that they're going to live with the rest of their life. Can you give an example, the one that you had with your personal discovery between white rice versus lentils? Because I thought that yeah. was really interesting. And, and I think yeah. that example is going to really kind of clarify what we're talking about here. Yeah. So, you know, I've always suspected that I just did better on lower carb in, in general and like that. That's kind of borne itself out over time. But I actually use a continuous blood glucose monitor, which is this little disc that you slap on the back of your arm and it puts a little probe under the skin and it checks your blood glucose once a minute for the duration that you wear it, which for me was two weeks. And I tested a pretty broad variety of foods and I tried some of these, you know, like classic, uh, safe starches that have been kind of, kind of thrown around in paleo ancestral health land, like white potatoes and white rice. And I, I tried these things you know, where you would cook them and eat them immediately or cook them and freeze them and, you know, warm them up again. And it's supposed to increase the resistant starch and decrease the insulin load. But a, a very modest amount of white rice or white potatoes for me would stick me up near diabetic levels with the blood sugar. It'd be like 170, 180 at, at two hours post postprandial. And, uh, which is way, way higher than what anybody would want. And then interestingly, the same amount of carbohydrate from lentils, I would get maybe like 115, 120. It, it, but, you know, the lentils do have a lot of protein in them. They have a lot of fiber in them. So you have to eat a lot of lentils to get that same net carbohydrate amount relative to um, the amount of rice or white potatoes that you eat. So there is clearly some some element to that story, but it was fascinating to me that there was such a dramatic difference between a pretty good size helping of lentils versus a decent size helping again, equal amounts of carbohydrate. They were all 50 grams of effective carbohydrate in these tests. And my blood sugar differences were just stunning. And also how I subjectively felt was really, really telling. Like I've always suspected, oh man, I'm in this kind of high blood sugar. Now I'm going into low blood sugar, but I was able to watch it in real time. Like I could actually see the blood glucose, like ticking up minute by minute and staying elevated. And then I would start feeling really bad. And then when it would slide down the hypoglycemic backside, I would get that hangry feeling and foggy headed and, uh, irritable. And so I've always experienced this stuff, you know, my whole life I I've experienced it intermittently, but I had never had that validation of, Oh, when I feel this bad, it's because my blood sugar has done this. And, you know, I could pretty consistently track that. So that was a pretty fascinating experiment to do. And it, I, I recommend a, a pared down version of that within the book. Well, and what a great baseline for you too, because in the future, even if you're not wearing the disc and you have a feeling like that, you might go, wait a minute, I think that that's my, my blood glucose might be too high. Right. Yeah. And it really did dial me into that. Like I could tell when, you know, when it's funny because a lot of doctors will say, you can't tell when your blood glucose is high. And it's like, no, man, I definitely can't. You know, like there's a weird feeling that you get when the blood glucose is too high. And then there's a very different feeling that you experience when you crash on the backside and something that was really interesting, the the last couple of days of the test I actually went kind of ketogenic. And so I just got my blood glucose levels down to a baseline low level, which I felt great at, but it was a lower level than where I would land after a blood sugar high and then a subsequent low. But what's interesting is the brain really doesn't like dramatic changes in blood sugar. Like it gets really cranky about that. And so I would feel really pretty poor at a blood glucose of, say, like 80, but that's after I had experienced a blood glucose of like 160. And so I had a really huge delta on that. But then when I ate a couple of days of just low carb, 
say I would be 75, but I felt great and I was totally rock solid. But that's because my brain had not experienced that really jagged high and then the fall off, which is what really concerns it. Because uh, it, 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 unless you're in a legit ketogenic state, if you get that really high blood sugar experience followed by a low if it goes too low, you're not going to be able to get any glucose in your brain and you're going to die, you know, and that that's part of the benefit of being ketotic or at least nicely fat adapted is you have a little bit of a buffer in that regard. Well, let's let's get into ketosis because, you know, you talk about it in your book and you also offer uh, some protocols and some menu plans, a lot of great recipes, too, in the second half of the book. But you, know, you make the point that humans have gone in and out of ketosis, you know, throughout the centuries here. And a lot of people, even the diehard, you know, uh, low carb ketosis people, there's some of them in the community that have said, you know what? F it. It's too hard in the long run. And, you know, I, I don't stay in it all the time consistently 100%. And it makes more sense to me that that would be the way where we'd, we'd come across moments of abundance around us where we wouldn't be maybe in ketosis because of the abundance of food. And then there'd be times where we wouldn't. So let's talk about uh, ketosis because they are, you know, ketosis and fasting are really hot topics. And you do have a chapter devoted to this. So what are the benefits and potential pitfalls of ketosis and fasting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that one up. I'm actually tickled. I managed to keep that chapter in the book. Like my publisher was freaked out by how large the book was. And it, it, it but it, it like it, you just, when you're telling a story, you got to tell the whole story. So it, it, uh, you know, that was as concise as I could make everything. And the, the ketosis story, I, I start that chapter with a little recollection about my father. He was a, a contractor and it was funny to listen to him, himself and the the other contractors like they would get into all kinds of squabbling matches about, oh, you should do this like this or that like that. But I noticed that there was never any contention like if it was time to use a handsaw, you used a handsaw. If it was time to use a screwdriver, you used a screwdriver. And there was just no drama about that. You know, it was pretty crystal clear. And it's fascinating to me that in this medical and nutrition scene, um, there is just huge pissing matches that go on. You know, is it high carb? Is it low carb? Is there only one way? And I really just look at this stuff as a tool and low carb and fasting, low carb in particular being ketosis. They're amazing tools. And it, it's clear that the ketogenic state was a critical feature of human survival. There's just no doubt about that. There's all kinds of thermodynamics that go into it. Um, you know, we are the fattest uh, primate by a mile. And part of the reason for that is that we developed, a, instead of a grazing strategy, we had an intermittent food consumption strategy that was based around more highly nutrient-dense foods which was uh, had some benefits, but also had some challenges. If we have a really metabolically active brain, if we run out of glucose, we need something else that we can fuel it. And fat isn't immediately amenable to that because the fat is difficult to move around the body. It's kind of slow in processing. But if we're really limited in um, carbohydrates and in protein, but we have an abundance of fat, which even super lean people have a significant amount of fat stored in their body, we can produce these things called ketone bodies, which are water-soluble fats, essentially. And so that allows them to go through the blood-brain barrier and provide an alternate fuel source for the brain during times of, of uh, fasting or uh, extremely low carbohydrate intake. And it's a really elegant system, and it, it, it's pretty magical. But it, and it has huge therapeutic potential, like we've known for over a century that uh, ketogenic diets and fasting are incredibly beneficial for neurological conditions like epilepsy. We're understanding that there's a huge number of neurological conditions that likely benefit from ketosis and fasting, possibly even some exogenous ketones. But there's also a reality that not every single system or situation is amenable to a ketogenic diet. Like some people just metabolically may not feel that great while, while in ketosis. And then you have some people that are, uh, you know, hard charging athletes. And although there's more and more athletes that are finding a way to crack that nut of, of low carb fueling, you know, crossfitters, mixed martial artists, Brazilian jujitsu practitioners, people that really live in that glycolytic carb based pathway 
I think you can get them more fat adapted, but I, I uh, have broken myself and a few other people pretty epically trying to really shoehorn them into a, a classic ketogenic ratio diet. And uh, so again, like I try to, I think the name of the chapter is uh, hammers, drills and ketosis. The one tool your doctor is never going to use or unlikely to use or something like that. And, and uh, so it, it, the, it seems like it's a little two-faced because on the one hand, I'm saying ketosis and fasting are really, really amazing tools, which I absolutely am certain of. But at the same time, I'm not completely convinced that they are the right thing for everybody at all times. And uh, it's funny because I will have folks who get really cranky at me that I suggest uh, ketosis and fasting at all. And then I have other camps that are, you know, losing their mind because I don't recommend fasting or, or ketosis for everybody all the time. And so it's a, it's an easy topic to start getting people very, very cranky with you. <laughs> maybe they're, maybe they're like hangry and that's why. <laughs> that, that would be my, my knee jerk reaction as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously we know sleep and exercise is important, but wh why is uh, a community such a significant feature of Wired to Eat? Um, you know, we mentioned earlier, you know, you can do everything by home, right? We can even connect with other people <laughs> on the internet and not ever go out of the house. Um, obviously we know good sleep is important to circadian rhythm of hormones. And obviously everyone, even if you're sedentary, would can see why exercise would be important. Um but, but, you know, for someone who's like, yeah, well, isn't it really just about food at the end of the day? So what's your response there? And I really want to hear more about the community aspect, because I think that's what people are getting further and further away from. And we need to get more back into that primal aspect of this whole ancestral health scene, which is right tribe and community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I so wish that it could have just been food, you know, if it, 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 protein, carbs, fat, and we're done. But, you know, all of this stuff interweaves and, and fits together. And so community is huge for a lot of reasons on a, a very 30,000 foot level. There is an understanding that inadequate social connectivity can be as damaging to one's health as a pack a day smoking habit. So it increases morbidity and mortality at a really remarkable rate. And so that's one thing. Why do you think that is? What's, what's behind that? What's your assessment? Oh man, I, I think it's stress. I think that we are, um, you know, we are biologically, again, if we get back into the kind of evolutionary biology of this stuff, we are social tribal entities. And we, again, we can look at other, other primates. If, if a, a, uh, a monkey or a chimpanzee gets kind of kicked out of its group, they tend to get sick and die unless they get brought in by another group. And these other groups are kind of reticent to, to bring in new newcomers. And so, there's some biological wiring there that if you, for whatever reason, aren't on the end with some kind of a, a group, then there's a really profound stress that occurs there. And, you know, I, I, uh, I go through kind of a timeline and I actually did a blog post on this. There was some material in the book that I wasn't able to keep in. And so I did some blog posts on it and I, I went through a timeline looking at food, sleep, movement and community and how each of those factors has changed 10,000 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago, you know, and kind of march it up to the to the present. And that community piece and the, the social interaction, you know, up until maybe 50 years ago, like people moved in family units. Um, uh, but as work became more uh, specialized. It was really good on the one hand, because if you lost employment and you lived in one part of the country, then you could move to another part of the country and probably find uh, employment there. And that was a boon in some ways economically. But when you look at social fabric and social connectivity, that that uh, highly mobile story can be really fragmentary with regards to one's uh, social group and that that basic social support. So now we have you know, virtually everybody, you know, they grow up and then they move as far away as possible. And maybe you get some friends in college, but how often do you really stay in close proximity to those folks? And then maybe you start working at a particular, you know, uh, uh, craft or profession, but people are staying at these, these different jobs two, 
two to four years, I think on average, you know, like somebody being in a, a specific position for four years is like eons now, whereas used to, you know, folks stayed at a company for 30 years and got the golden handshake at the end of that. That, that just doesn't happen anymore. So we have these really fragmentary elements of our society occurring. And then social media, which is amazing in some ways, like it's part of the reason why the ancestral health movement has exploded the way it has because we're able to connect and share ideas and stories and whatnot. But it's kind of the junk food of social connectivity. It kind of feels good, but you just want more and more and more and it doesn't actually satisfy that fundamental need. And uh, again, I think that all of the social connectivity piece really boils down to a, a stress response when we have inadequate levels of connectivity. And I also make the point in the book that um, toxic relationships, like just having relationships for the sake of having some type of connectivity, if they're sufficiently toxic, like that may not be a good move either. And so I, I weave all of that in and all of it also. That, that's so important. I just want to touch be, on that. You know what? Who are you hanging out with people? Get You got, you got to clean it up. You know, this is, you have to also look at your own involvement, right? Because if you're in an unhealthy or toxic relationship, you're part of it. And even if you're playing the codependent part, you're still involved. So, you know, uh, right. I always, you know, in a lot of those moments are, I've talked about it with life coaches on our show where it's tough because the person on the, who knows they need to get out of the toxic relationship can often throw out the excuse of like, well, I don't want, they're more worried about what the other person will think or people around them and think about that. So you're choosing opinion of others over your own peace of mind and, and self-worth. And so I challenge everybody if you're, you know, and in the way to really determine that is how do I know I'm in toxic relationship? You go hang out with a friend. Are you feeling good afterwards? Or are you feeling weird and annoyed or awkward or pissed or resentful or whatever? That's kind of a sign right there. And you got to just break up with these people, <laughs> you know? So I, I feel that's so important. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And it, it, uh, it gave my publisher fits because they were like, this is a diet book. Why are you talking about this? I'm like, because it all fits together, man. It's like that that guy from the History Channel with the crazy hair. And he's like, aliens, you know, and I, I just <laughs> wanted to stand there and say it's all connected, man. So, yeah. Well, thing, like I was watching... Um uh, I watched the movie Sully not too long ago, you know, about the true story of the plane landing mm -hmm. in the Hudson. Mm -hmm. And um, I had my heart rate monitor on. And oh, my God. I mean, just watching that movie, my heart rate resting was like 120. I was because I was in I mean, right. I was in a generated stressful environment that, of course, I've subjected myself to willingly. We know what those. But if, if, if a movie can do that to you, what do you think a really shitty time with a toxic friend will do? Right. It's the same thing. It's raising that blood pressure. It's raising cortisol. And, uh, you know, you and I both know how important that is. Um, let's talk about this. It's a 30-day reset. This is a great this, – this book is really clear, concise, not only lays out a variety of sort of eating plans, even if you're interested in ketosis, there's options there too. And then you have a ton of recipes as well. So – you know, what can someone look forward to in this 30-day reset? I mean, someone's hating it right now and they want to get it together. Uh, this is a really simple, easy plan. And 30 days is really not a lot in the grand scheme of one's life to take a chance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's long enough that you can get enough changes that you can look back and say, oh, that's probably worthwhile continuing. But it's short enough that you can at least lie to yourself in the beginning. Oh, I can totally do this, you know? <laughs> so it, it's kind of a sweet spot in that, that regard. And, uh, you know, what, what I try to do, and I, I feel like I did a pretty good job is set up a triage process. So let's figure out where you are with your general health, in particular, your in insulin sensitivity. And we talked about uh, this stuff a little bit as far as what's your blood pressure, what's your waist to hip measurements, how do you feel between meals? Like, do you treat eating the way that an emphysemic treats an oxygen bottle and that like you need to eat every like 45 minutes or you're going to auger into a mountainside or can you eat a meal and then go eight or 10 hours and you'd be hungry, but you're functional. Those are two very, very different metabolic states. And so I help people figure out where they are on that spectrum. Then we jump in on a 30 day reset, which is basically kind of a lowish carb paleo approach, but there's some there's some sliding scale on that based off of where you are in that insulin resistant spectrum. Somebody who's more insulin resistant will start on the lower side. Someone who's more insulin sensitive will be a little higher, higher in the carbs, maybe a little more moderate in the fat. And then we motor forward with that for 30 days. And it, again, you've, you've done a great job of mentioning like we have a ketogenic plan. We have an autoimmune plan, like all of these things tie together 
So again, depending on your individual needs, there's a 30-day meal plan that addresses what you are doing. And truth be told, it's actually two weeks that you repeat. I just couldn't wrap my head around doing doing legitimate, you know, 30 days of completely unique stuff. So it's basically a two-week template that you you repeat twice. And then uh, after that, then you enter into this seven-day carb test, which is where we're able to get really granular about how you respond to different carbs. And you know what? I'll be completely honest with you. Um, I... I, I'm pretty good at bait and switches, and this is one of the bait and switches that I, I put into this. I really do believe that there is a lot more variation from person to person in the way that they respond to carbs, and I really make that point pretty clearly, but I'm almost guaranteed that the vast majority of people, particularly in our kind of broken westernized societies, they're not going to do so well with the, with the seven day carb test. Like they're, yeah. they're going to notice that their blood sugars are sky high, that they feel like hell. But I really take it as a like, Hey man, we don't know. Let's just check it out and see. <laughs> and so as they motor through the whole thing, then I'm not being the like overly paternal, like, Oh, you need to do this. Or I'm the paleo guy or whatever. It's like, I don't know, man, maybe, maybe you can just eat all kinds of white rice and have great blood sugars and not become diabetic. And then they take the test after, you know, re reestablishing baseline of health with the 30 day reset. And they're like, holy smokes, you know? And so, um, I will. Sometimes people need to see it, right? You know, I've, yeah. I've spoken to people that are on a sugar addiction train. They know they need to stop. They won't. They're like, should I get the HbA1c? And I've said, listen, if you need to see the bad number in order to hit your rock bottom, you do whatever you got to do. Right. And sometimes those people do. They need to go out and get it tested. It's almost like, you know, it's a mental thing. It's like, well, if it's not so bad, then I can kind of keep up this sugar addiction. But if it is as bad as I think, then I need to see the number to threaten me to stop. Right. And, you know, so I, I agree with that bait and switch and that's why diagnostics are important that's why the blood pressure and like this carb test is important yeah i um i've gotten pretty good at letting folks feel like they had all kinds of freedom in the process that they were doing but all along i've just been corralling them into a tire and it's like no you actually didn't have all that many options but you have to let people i i've learned over time that, that it may take them a little a little bit longer to get to a spot versus me flogging them towards a direction. But when, um, when those decisions are made from an experiential standpoint where they did it, they experienced it and then they make a decision about how they want to respond to that, then that's real. And then what's interesting is that then they don't need me after that. They've got a process for figuring out not just like nutrition, but this is a whole you know, way of discovering how to navigate your life, you know, this kind of empirical um, experimentation process. So I, I learned to give people a little more latitude, but at the same time, just structure it in a way that I'm pretty sure they're going to hit the lane lines that I want them to stay in and, and, you know, find a truth that works for them. Yeah. And it's, it's really fun. I think along this process is, you know, it's finding out about you, you're learning more about you, like, and what's particular right. to you. And that's, you know, I mean, <clears throat> What better exercise? Uh, before we wrap it up, you have an interesting take on the word hypochondria. So can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know what spurred this, but I, I'm a little bit of a geek on kind of like the history and the uh, etymology of, of words, like word roots and stuff like that. And, you know, we're, we're in this paleo ancestral health primal scene. And so we're pretty savvy about gut health and we understand it's a really big feature and it, it was a couple of years ago and I was thinking, okay, the gut, like the gut's really important. And even Socrates, like generally regarded as kind of like the father of Western medical thought, he said, all disease begins in the gut. So I'm kind of noodling. I'm so glad you brought up Socrates because I do have a degree in philosophy and he's, I mean, you know, the, the grandfather of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty amazing, you know, and then one day I, w I was kind of poking around some medical terminology stuff and I was like, hypochondria. Man, that's the person who's like the recalcitrant patient who always has something going on and they've got this and they've got that. And it made me think back to my mother and my mom had been sick for ages. I mean, as far back as I could remember, my mom had some sort of health problem going on and pretty serious stuff. Like she had her gallbladder removed in her 30s. It clearly, 
looking back, we now understand that she had celiac disease, gluten sensitivities, dairy sensitivities. She was insulin resistant, heading towards uh, type 2 diabetes. Um, and she had like eight different interrelated autoimmune conditions that were brewing and kind of growing up. And so it's not super surprising that she just felt like hell and she had all kinds of weird stuff going on. Like one day her foot hurts, the next day she can't think and she's super like cognitively impaired, but nothing fit into a really crystal clear diagnosis. And I never heard a doctor call her this, but my mom would actually say, I guess I'm just a hypochondriac. You know, I guess I just make all this stuff up, which clearly was not the case. But it's interesting that the Latin root for hypochondria, hypo means below, chondria basically means uh, cartilage or ribs. And so you basically have a word that means below the ribs, which is the gut. And I'm still trying to figure out. So it, in standard medical parlance, a hypochondriac is someone who is theoretically making up all these problems. But somebody somewhere figured this out either by accident. Maybe it's completely by accident. I still haven't really pinned down like the the you know, the seed crystal on this, but somebody figured out that someone who has lots of hard to pin down problems, a good name for that might be the problems are below the ribs or in the gut. And so that's kind of my possibly unique contribution to medicine at large and, and uh, <laughs> I love the ancestral health approach. Yeah. I love it. And you know, gosh, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of hypothyroid patients are often blamed for being hypochondriac because they do mm -hmm. have these weird symptoms like your mom had where, you know, one day it's like inner itching of the ears and the next day, like you have a, a nerve pain in your hip. I mean, you know what I mean? And these things, right. then you feel crazy because everyone's telling you nothing's wrong with you. you know? Yeah. You're basically an electrical problem in an old Ford, you know, T-top or something <laughs> right. and, and nobody can pin it down. Yeah. I love it. Um, what would you like to leave our audience with? Um, this is a, this is a great book, Wired to Eat. Uh, we can find it on Amazon, of course. We'll put your website, robwolf.com, in the show notes as well. And you've got great blogs and obviously an amazing podcast as well. Um, what would you like to leave our audience with on this one? Oh, man, just a huge honor being on the show. And it, depending on when the podcast goes up, if folks end up doing a pre-order for Wired to Eat, definitely save your pre-order receipt, whether that's from a brick and mortar location or uh, electronic, and you can cruise over to robwolf.com. And we have some pretty cool bonuses that, that go with all the pre-orders. There is a really phenomenal workbook that I put together that helps to walk you through the 30-day reset and the seven-day carb test and also to kind of make sense of all the material that's in the why, the beginning part of, of Wired to Eat. I have an interview with Dr. Bill Cromwell, who is the head of cardiovascular disease research at LipoScience and LabCorp. And we talked about the recommended blood work that I have in the book and, and things like advanced testing and lipoproteins. He is basically one of the primary science, scientists that developed the NMR technique for looking at lipoproteins. So he's really kind of like the, the granddaddy on this stuff. He was a physical chemist in his past life and then went to medical school and, and, for most chemists, when they hear the term physical chemistry, these are basically physicists that do chemistry. So they're like ridiculously smart. So we, I did a interview with him and I had two other bonuses too, which I can't for the life of me remember right now, but they're, they're pretty cool. But those are going to be available up until release date, which is March 21st. Great. That's an awesome bonus. And then what are you, what are you up to these days? I mean, you're always speaking and you know, uh, you've got your podcast. What else is happening in your world? I've been fiddling with this risk assessment program here in Reno for about five years now. And I really, four years ago, I thought that this was going to be a multi-billion dollar company and it would have changed the world by now. And, uh, I've, I've, um, I've had my comeuppance on that a bit in discovering just how complex the medical system is one and how misaligned all the incentives are for health too. And so the the thing is growing and I'm working on it, but it, it's um, it's going to be a very different growth trajectory than what I had initially in, envisioned. I, I just really quickly, we did a, a two year pilot study with the Reno Police, Reno Fire Department. This happened about six years ago and 35 individuals were found who were at high risk for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. All these people were put on a paleo type diet. 
modified sleep and exercise as best could, you know, could happen under those circumstances. Based off the changes in their blood work and their health risk parameters, it's estimated that the pilot study alone saved the city of Reno about $22 million with a 33 to 1 return on investment. Wow. And so pretty jaw-dropping stuff, which is also why I thought that we were just going to set the world on fire and change everything. And, uh, you know, we still are getting some buy-in here and there, but it's a fascinating time to nose around uh, healthcare. It's a very chaotic space and the regulations are are completely set up counter to uh, fundamental health. And then we actually get out in the real world and, you know, people are facing hyper palatable foods and, and all kinds of other challenges. So it's, um, that's mainly what I've been putting a lot of effort into aside from the book. And then of course my wife and, and uh, two daughters. So I'm, I'm pretty darn busy right now. That's amazing. That's amazing work you're doing and always appreciate and follow what you do and look forward to seeing you here in Malibu soon, I think. Yep. Yep. I will be down that, that way right around the book lunchtime. Yes. That's awesome. Well, have a wonderful day. Thanks so much for joining us. And again, your new book, Wired to Eat. We will post all the links on the show notes and of course available on Amazon or your website, robwolf.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. And I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.